just going to say a warm welcome to you. Um, it's the third edition of Adventure with Edinburgh, actually. Um, and it's going to be the last event before the summer break because it's, it's lovely outside. And I think everyone's possibly itching a little bit to get out in the park <laughs> instead of sitting on a chair and talking. But that's what we're here for. So uh, my name is Marcus. Um, I've yeah, initiated the whole thing here. Um, I've written about the world on a single speed bike. And when I came back to Edinburgh, I was talking to a couple of people who live here and just figured out there's so many people in Edinburgh that do quite incredible things. And this is really just a platform to, to have a chat about the things and to explore some of the things a bit more. And, and most importantly, to inspire you to go out, grab your bike, go for a run, go camping, go hiking, do whatever you want and enjoy beautiful countryside we have in Scotland so I'm very pleased um, tonight um, it's I'm obviously quite a keen cyclist myself um, it's quite nice to have three very keen people on, on two wheels here um, at um, shoot who um, runs speed of mountains can I say that yeah possibly yeah, uh, yeah. quite an interesting block <laughs> um, especially for the five rules of bikepacking I'll come back back <laughs> to that later um, Marianne as well um, I guess you're married then. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Naomi Freireich, um, <coughs> who is a 24-hour racer, possibly his best description there. Yeah. Um, and <coughs> I think it's quite interesting because um, I'm just gonna gonna the format of tonight's just gonna we're gonna have a chat about certain things and feel free to ask questions afterwards as well. I think it's the nature of the event to explore certain things a bit better. I think I had a look at your blogs and did a bit of digging into it. Um, it's incredibly hard for Ed and Marion to kind of find places where you haven't been. <laughs> <laughs> um, just, 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 just kind of tease in, like how, how, how did you get into cycling? How did the whole bikepacking thing start for you too? Well, uh, you've or, or always been obsessed with biking. Yes. Well, we, we met at school and I guess I was starting to race cross-country uh, at high school and we did our first cycle touring trip together at mm -hmm. sixth form at mm -hmm. high school, so, so it's been with a... our town bikes and our shopping panniers. Well, you had a rucksack, I had yeah. panniers. It was the first stage of the evolution of bikepacking, <laughs> I like to refer to it as. <laughs> but um, yeah, so we've always, I, I, like, I, I've always mountain biked mostly, I've, I've never done a huge amount of road riding. Um, uh, but as tours have progressed, I guess I've done more and more on the road. Um, and I think we've both been mountain biking pretty much with all our kit ever since, haven't we? Yeah, I think we got into biking because of you. But now is what I like to do. So, <laughs> <laughs> so how long has that been then? Quite a, well, quite a number of years then, huh? Uncomfortable as the journey is. Seventeen? 17 years? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, Naomi, for you? A little bit later? Uh, significantly less. <laughs> uh, I started cycling um, to work, really, commuting, um, and bumped into a girl in the changing rooms who was a mad keen mountain biker. She just started with her boyfriend who was like crazy fast, um, and she wanted someone to chum around, so I joined her and um, absolutely loved it. And that was about eight years ago, I would say. Um, and then seven years ago, um, my marriage at the time sort of fell apart um, and I used biking kind of as a, an opportunity for me to just sort of get out and, and spend some time on my own and, and so seven years probably is about as long as I've been riding seriously. So seriously, what, what, what does seriously mean? Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I suppose with some sort of level of commitment. Um, I mean, I, I had always been quite sporty at school. I swam sort of a county level, so I, I liked the competition side of things, and um, Strava kind of got me hooked into riding things fast and seeing how I sort of stacked up against others. And um, I uh, seemed to do okay, so um, yeah, I used that as a, a, an opportunity to just go on and, and try racing. Um, yeah. The racing side of things, sort of fell through a bit because I had an injury uh, a few years ago on my foot and so I was out of action for you know a good sort of six to eight months with 
operations and things, but the last couple of years um, is as long as I've been doing it, sort of with any kind of enthusiasm. Yeah, and quite successfully as well. Well, yeah, <laughs> I seem to have been okay. I don't know. I suffer a bit from in imposter syndrome, I think, because um, I've always got an excuse for why I, I do well at a race. Um, you know, either someone has mechanicals, or you know, maybe the fastest people don't turn up, or you know, so. I think it's it's quite common in the sport that, that people feel this way, but you know, I'm, I'm doing okay. I'm really pleased with, with how my season's going. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, just talking about racing, at, um, at Marion, you entered Glentress seventh and you won it, and you came fourth for the second time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> so how does that work? That was great. <laughs> <laughs> Marion always does well in racing. <laughs> so I had done it a couple of times and I thought last year, well, you know, I'm doing quite a lot of riding, I'll just have a go. And it was, I just went along, you know, I started, I wanted to do it solo just to see how that went. I'd done a race a couple of weeks previously that had been around, taking around six and a half hours, so I knew I could ride for nearly seven hours um, without falling off um, and dying. But uh, I, I think because I didn't have any expectation of <coughs> I didn't really know what the competition was like. I just thought, oh, well, I'll go and have a nice time. It was a beautiful sunny day. Um, and I started, you know, halfway down the path at the start, and I just went out to have a good time. But when I, they they didn't have the results. At the, so you do, like, a lap, and you see how many laps you can do in seven hours. They weren't announcing the results every time I came through the lap, so I just had no idea how I was doing until I finished. And then someone was like, oh, you won. <laughs> so that was quite cool. I think I did better because I wasn't putting any pressure on myself, I was just doing a nice time. Yeah. So it was a nice surprise. Yeah. I, and, and that's something that I really noted. So I did the Strathpuffer for the, that was my first big race last year. Um, and then I did it again this year. And going back to a race and doing it a second time, you go in with sort of all these expectations and people know who you are and there's just loads and loads of pressure on yourself. But the, the first year that I did it, I was a complete unknown. It was the first time I'd ed ever done anything like it. And, and so it was, it was just a case of, sort of going and enjoying yourself, mm -hmm. actually. And so I'm doing it again in two weeks' time, and I'm really trying to be like, no, I'm just going to go and have fun. <laughs> but I know I'll yeah, get did to you, start then. Did you do Strap as well then? Because mm. I know Ed was doing Strap Puffer <laughs> this year. Um, I must say, I did Strap Puffer myself, and I was the person who wrote six laps and then decided it's not for me and wrote home. Um, so <laughs> I met Marcus in the middle of the night, and I was struggling, and Marcus said to me, I think, um, I think I'm going to cycle home now. And I, I, I didn't say anything, and then I carried on riding, and then thought, did Marcus say he was going to ride home? Yeah, he did. Okay. Um, so that's quite interesting. So, I mean, the thing which I found quite quite amusing, um, we were just talking about, I, mean, I think possibly we're going to talk about the five rules of bikepacking a little bit later, but um, it's a very controversial thing. I think everyone has to have a little bit of a controversial thing on the floor. They had to achieve that with that article big time. Um, it just, but in, in kind of kind of a approach your your approach to cycling. So Naomi, you. It's the result that really gets you gets you out there, or is it is it is it the are you riding for the experience, or are you riding to get a get a get a good result in a race, or is it a mixture of both? It, it is a mixture of both because it's not. I mean, it's not just the racing that I do. I also do sort of long distance trails as well. So yeah. I've ridden the West Highland Way. We were just talking about that. Um, the Great Glen Way. I've ridden John Muir Way. Um, all of these and uh, and it's as much about the experience when I'm doing that as, as about, you know, riding it really, really fast. Um, <laughs> I like riding really fast as well, so, you know, bonus. Um, but I've met loads and loads of amazing people through cycling. Um, and I like just as much as going out and racing, going out and just riding a bike with some mates and having a laugh and, yeah, enjoying the trails. What about you two? I think bikepacking for me, the real attraction is the sense of freedom. Like the bikepacking that we do, we take our tent and our stove, and wherever we are, we just kind of set off. And this is just amazing sense because you're relatively self-sufficient. Yes, you need to buy the river to get some water, and you maybe need to stock up on food every few days. But you know, you can just ride as far as you want, and you've got your tents, and you can find somewhere to camp. If you find a nice place, you can just stop, chill out. If you have a good day where you want to carry on going, you can just keep going, get some miles in. 
think that's yeah. I mean, I like the racing side of it as well, but I think I like the just the freedom of going exploring new places. And with the two of you, did you did you start bikepacking simultaneously, or is did one go ahead and the other one? We we've always joined done in. trips. <laughs> to g we I've, I've done I've done more trips than Marion has, but not many more. Um, we've done most things together. It seems to work quite well. Um, we when I cycled to India, Marion said she'd had enough in Georgia, which was probably fair enough. <laughs> so I carried on on my own, um, which was interesting actually because the dynamic really it was really interesting seeing the change in the dynamic. So when we were together as a couple, maybe. We'd it's probably the way we, we work, we, we kind of stuck together uh, and maybe didn't interact with people as much. And then as soon as I set off on my own, I was on my own and I was forced to go and meet people. So the first night I'd, I rode, the first day I rode 40K on my own, I left Marin in Tbilisi and I met an Iranian guy in Georgia uh, and he said, oh, do you want to come and, in broken English, do you want to come and stay with me? And I said, yeah, why not? I'll come. And so we went to his house and I was thinking, with Marion, we would have just said, oh, thank you, but no, and carried on. And, and as a result of that, I met some great people and, and probably maybe had more of a immersive, I guess, experience being on my own. I don't know if that's true for, for everyone, but that certainly seems to be the way it works. It was quite interesting. But um, yeah, mostly we, we, we do go together. Though, so. And do you go out on your own then as well? Um, I haven't been on any big trips on my own, I guess. Um, we tended to do those as a because then you can share carrying all the stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you're not allowed to take panniers then. Well, <laughs> so I take I take the upper bags and she has panniers of all the stuff. <laughs> so people joke about. But we did do. Um, it was interesting. We did a tour um, to kind of it's part of this stage of moving from panniers because we all started off with panniers and then moved to bikepacking bags. Uh, and one of the tours, Marion took two lightweight panniers and I took kind of a similar setup to this with a bigger frame bag. So when we rode the Pamir Highway um, in Tajikistan and uh, it was really interesting because the headwinds there were very strong and Marin really, she had less weight in the panniers because they were quite small and very lightweight and didn't fill them up particularly. Um, but the wind had a massive impact and, and we tried to then swap panniers for bike pack and bags, swap them over the bikes, but true to form the rack bolts sheared uh, and when we were changing it so then the rack was stuck <laughs> on, on Marin's bike but uh, it shows two downsides of, of panniers because you've got the I think racks inherently are more unreliable and also it shows you that wind resistance is, is such a difference uh, it was just so much easier with the bike packing bags and I was interested that was the last tool we've ever used we have used panniers on well then the panniers disintegrated on one of the rough roads we rode on, and that was really the end of panniers for me. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> <laughs> but it's possibly a good starting point, just this kind of, we've got Ed's bike here. Um, what is the stuff you're taking? You, uh, you seem to be travelling very light. So I've, I've packed <laughs> it with enough kit for a Scottish kind of weekend trip for camping. So, yeah, I, so, uh, I, I, yeah, I'm very keen on efficiency and lighter stuff, even if I'm not racing, I don't see the need to more kit than I should, so, uh, I, I, yeah, I thought it would be interesting, so in the bar bag I have sleeping bag, stove, gas, can, uh, and pan, uh, and then in the back I have a tent, sleeping mat, spare clothes, waterproofs, uh, and then I'd often, you've got more capacity in there as well to get food, food in there, and then I'd strap, either use a, a frame bag, which I tend not to, or strap spare tube on there and then that's everything you need uh, and then a couple of water bottles on there um, uh, or a fuel bottle will go under here uh, and then you can get a bit more stuff in the frame for a longer trip so, um, so yeah it, people always amazed that you can get everything in there it, but that's I can't you know that's everything you need so, so yeah. you, you work very tall so you don't have that problem but my bike wouldn't fit any of it is that right? I'm surprised because your bike is very, no, it's quite small comparatively, mm -hmm. and you've never had a problem. We use this bag here is very, for the bar bag is very uh, high. You know, there's a lot of clearance. I know this is a huge head tube, but um, it, you can get it up. Um, with the saddle pack, I guess be, my, the saddle yeah. pack that I've used has been slightly smaller than that. 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so Marin uses the 14 litre one, which, yeah, I, unfortunately, it's, yeah, I guess it's. The solution is, yeah. It's, yeah, it's probably um, looking at where else you can get, so using the fork luggage, yeah. I would say, and, and um, whether you can get anything the seat stays is another option. I've, I've put on there the, the water bottle mount that we use, so if I use a full frame bag, you can put, I have one water bottle there and one water bottle there, mm. and then this has another mount here. So you can you can always, I would think that that would be the other place I would try and stash stuff, um, and then try and get the smallest seat pack. <coughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> I'll feed it back to them if you like. Yeah. Um, so when you go where you share certain things, um, <laughs> oh, is there any items you don't share? Uh, no, we. Uh, so yeah, usually I I can get in all the stuff, communal stuff, pretty much on my bike, and you you'll carry the food uh, and first aid kit maybe. But that's generally how yeah we we split stuff up. Good stuff. We come back to the rules of bike packing. <laughs> Just Naomi from I again I had a look at some of the articles and it was I was quite I came up um, came across this quote here before rolling over um, <coughs> and pretending it's not happening. I remember that today I've got to be a full time mum, an IT project manager, and train for three hours. I have to go and be. Uh, I have to. I'm going to have to be be a bit creative with my day. How does that all fit in a day? Uh, well, <laughs> it's, it's this sort of um, oxymoron, I suppose, of, of 24-hour racing and actually just loving sleep. Um, I, could, I could probably sleep maybe 23 hours out, out of a day, um, eating and toilet the rest. <laughs> uh, but to train for that, that sort of length of activity, you have to really stack up the, the, the training. And so with working full time and with having kids to look after um, after school, the only spare time really that I have during the day is, is before they get up. So typically uh, in a week um, when I've got my kids with me, I'll get up sort of five in the morning maybe and either jump on my training bike or um, go out on, on my mountain bike um, outside and make sure I'm back to get them up and get them breakfast. Yeah, no, I saw it on the blog. So you you do a couple of hours and then you wake your kids up and then yeah. you get them ready. And they're older; they're fairly self-sufficient now, so okay. um, they can. You know, it's not like I have to get them up and dress them and clean their teeth. Um, they do need quite a lot of chimney to get out of bed, so um, <laughs> typically <laughs> I'll have to chase them a few times. But okay. you know, they're used to it now. They just sort of expect to get up, and if they don't find me in my bedroom, then they know that I'm in the garage on the bike. And how many days a week do you have to do that? Uh, it sort of depends what I'm told. I got myself a coach um, at the end of last year. Okay. Um, and so before then I'd been really sort of winging it, I suppose. Um, so now I get a training plan every week and um, typically I'm training sort of five or six times a week. Um, and so maybe two or three times before work during the week I'll, I'll get up. And then I read also when, when you watch telly, you do work out. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite incredible. Oh, that's <laughs> it, you know. And, and my daughter's really um, funny because she likes to join in, and so I'm sort of doing my sit-ups or whatever, and she'll come and she'll do one, and she'll be like, oh, man, that's so horrible, so impossible. But um, it gets them trying, at least. Yeah. So how, how old are they? Uh, 11 and 15. So they're cycling as well, then? Uh, you know, my son's a, a gamer. Getting him outside, actually, is pretty difficult. But Amelia enjoys it, so she will come out on occasion. Right. And do they come to races then as well? Or? Uh, Zach's been, yeah. yeah. He came to um, Relentless, which is a 24-hour race um, up in Fort William uh, at the tail end of last year. With the express um, purpose of, of helping, I think maybe he got me a cup of tea once <laughs> <laughs> and spent the rest of the time sleeping oh, <laughs> or playing on his phone. So <laughs> I was just I would have asked how, how do you keep them entertained because it might, might be I've, I've raced 24 hour races myself and I think being support crew is possibly the most 
it's quite an intense but also quite a boring job at the same time because really nothing is. really happens yeah well i mean I, i'm really thankful so um so charlie who's sitting in the front row there yeah. um is uh, my partner and he's come along and helped me out with um the, the races that i've done so far and um the support job is probably harder than the riding in terms of keeping yourself motivated because i'm out there riding a bike that keeps me awake he's got to stay awake he's got to think about what food I want the next time I come in, whether I'm going to need to change my bottles, whether I need to change my kit. Um, he's got to, you know, be upbeat and try and keep me motivated to keep going out. And um, all the time he's tired and, and just sort of standing around, often in the cold, yeah. uh, probably the wet. Um, so yeah, they're sort of the unsung heroes of, of 24 hour racing, the guys who stay in the pit and, and yeah. look after me. So, Do you guys do 20? And Ed's doing 24 hours. Oh, I, Marion has never supported me once, so I just like to say it's going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> I hope she's listening. <laughs> no, it, it's, I, I, um, yeah, it's very difficult to support for 24 hours and stay awake, so usually I've been doing Five it with, with someone else time. who's doing it in a team or, or uh, stop and, and sort myself out. <laughs> How did you do Strap Buffer then? Were you by yourself? No, I had a couple of uh, friends friends yeah. actually were um, racing it uh, and I, it was a last minute thing I got a last minute entry and I so I had no preparation for it so I just went into it on a because they offered a place at the last minute and uh, so it was all a bit rushed luckily I ride my bike every day so I felt like I was pretty okay to do it and then um, so we're about a week and a half's notice probably 14 days on so yeah could have been better prepared you finished or you finished in a pretty good position I think better than me <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I wasn't last, I don't know, six laps is good. Yeah, six laps was enough. Yeah. yeah. Um, talking about that, it's just um, the other thing I, I when I when I did some research, gear. <laughs> How important? Right on your blog, everything's nicely laid out to get over the the thing of having not having the excuse that you're not ready in time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I am habitually lazy. So um, I will quite comfortably think of excuses to not get up and go out. Like I say, I really like sleep. So um, I need to make sure that I have absolutely no excuses. And yeah, that's one of the things that I do at night. I'll sit my kit right next to the bed so that I don't have to fish around and, and find it in the morning. Um, the question was about kit or about being ready? Because kit's like crazy important. Let's talk about kit then. Uh, because we've talked about bikes, right, and, and yeah. bags and, and, and stuff like that. And um, I, I sort of ride in all conditions. The stress puffer is in, in the heart of the winter. So um, this year I was really lucky. It was very dry and I didn't have to change my clothes very much. But then three weeks later I did um, another 24-hour race in Kielder and it just rained perpetually. And, and then there was snow and there were massive puddles underneath. And I went through all of my kit I think during that race and um, and you just you just have to plan for that you have to plan for needing absolutely everything you've got so um, so how do you plan how, how <laughs> is that like a yeah it's set routine or how do you plan uh, I tend to go through my drawers and throw everything in the, in the bag yeah and I have bottoms in one bag and I have tops in another bag and I have shoes in a box and you spare gloves and socks and all of the bits that you need all separate so that when I come in I can just say right I need to change my bottoms or the, the next lap I need to change this and, and it can be fairly easily found for me. And how many how many sets do you go to in the 24 hours? Uh, I, think, <laughs> I think the worst the worst thing that I did was um, I did a, a winter West Highland Way or we did an attempted uh, West Highland Way duathlon um, with a friend of mine who's a runner and Charlie did some of the running um, did the running as well and we got to Glencoe and I had been through two cycles of both of my sets of longs and they'd had to sort of dry out in the van I'd been through uh, all four of my waterproof jackets uh, my boots, two pairs of shoes uh, overshoes goodness knows how many jerseys and um, base layers and uh, all of my gloves um, and they just weren't dry so Glencoe was pretty much where we called it a day and turned around but yeah 
you, you use a lot of kit when it's bad. That's what about? It's quite interesting because I, um, I, I, again, I found a quote about that one that where you just kind of basically said, well, you know, it wasn't meant to be the whole yeah. distance, and you, you made it an adventure, called it a day, and, and we're quite happy with that. Yeah. Or was that? Was that? It, it was an amazing thing. So the idea sort of came from I did the Strathpuffle with with this chap Stuart, um, and as a pair this year. Um, and the idea really came from him. He he does all of these crazy things, and and sort of said, I wonder if it's possible to do West Highland Way, cycle it one way, and and, and run it the other. And you know that pricked my attention straight away. I'm like, oh, I've cycled the West Highland Way. I know it's totally doable. Charlie's run it. I know yeah. that it's runnable. Uh, and um, and so we just concocted this ridiculous plan that in February I'd ride it with Stuart. Uh, we'd get to the end. Uh, Stuart would turn around and he'd run it back with, with Charlie and um, I guess part of the experience for us wasn't about completing the thing that we'd set out to do it was about um, having the actual experience and you know imagining this crazy thing and just going off and doing it and we didn't get all the way to Fort William but we had a pretty good stab at it and it was loads and loads of fun type 2 fun but loads of fun Yes. <laughs> did, did you have the option to we did. go for this or do we turn around? We did, and, um, and there was a lot of deliberation about it, actually. We'd been talking about it all week. Um, part of the reason that we chose that weekend was because a friend of Stuart's wanted to, to film it. Um, and we were both free a fortnight later, which turned out to be the most glorious weekend. <laughs> Um, but he, but the, the video guy wasn't, um, and so it was, a, it was a really difficult decision to, to whether we would go ahead with it or, or try for the, the fortnight later. Um, mm. And in the end we thought... You made the decision to, to, to call it quits, so oh, okay. I imagine that we might have to drag Jake to say that's it. Yeah, we all did. It was, it was very much a joint effort. Um, we sat down in the, uh, the visitors at the cafe place in Glencoe, and we had a chat about it. Um, and, and it was sort of threefold, really. Um, the first thing was the weather had been atrocious. There was so much water, and the trails were just covered in enormous puddles. And the section that comes down off the top of the Devil's Staircase into Kinloch even has a river crossing um, that's got big boulders. And we were actually not sure we would get across there. Um, the time that it would have taken us from there to get to Fort William to then turn around again would have meant that we probably wouldn't have made it back to um, Glasgow until either the very early hours of um, Monday morning or possibly later, depending on disaster. And Charlie, as it happens, was, um, he, Charlie's a doctor and he was either on call on that Monday or um, on the wards or that week, so he physically had to be home. Um, and, and then there was the question of kit, and we were fast running out. So with all of those things, we just sat down and talked about it. Did we do it again? <laughs> <laughs> we did still then run back 77 miles. Yeah, right. so, uh, <laughs> <laughs> we didn't quite talk it Oh, yeah, we're already skiing. <laughs> I was tucking into bacon and eggs, then coping, I had another five hours of support. And I was like, look, you're running now. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> Well, that's it, right? Yeah, Glen back. And Glenco I mean, that's, a, that's an amazing feat anyway, right? Glen back. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it was still a success as far as we were concerned. That's pretty good. And just because I think this is, a, this is a good starting point for um, <laughs> starting with the five rules of bike packing. Um, it's quite interesting because I'm... Um, I think both me and Ed seem to be kind of the same kind of fabric of, of, of bike packer. I think there's this, there's a bike packing is pretty much people who are racing against the clock and trying to do incredible distances in a day. And then there's people like us with a camera and a cup of coffee. <laughs> um, just, just kind of like Ed and Marion, both of you, bike packing, what, 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 is, what, is, what gets you out there? What's the, what's the drive? What's the, what's the thing that that gets you on the bike and and, and go for a trip? Or I guess it, it started as a way of travelling and 
really getting a cool and unique experience of traveling into places that we'd never been before. And you, on a bike, you're more accepted uh, and, and kind of from the cycle touring point of view. But then when you're cycle touring, you have those boring days when you've got a huge straight road and nothing's happening and, and it can be quite tedious and people may opt to get the train or, or other things, but you know, if you're on a bike fully loaded with panniers, it can be quite tough. So by going lighter and taking the bikepacking approach, I think it then opens up, you can cover a couple hundred kilometers that day and get somewhere more interesting and then slow down when you're the more interesting place or someone offers you a place to sleep or there's an experience or a side trip, but then you, you've, you've got that kind of factor in because you can cover the distances, I think, more easily. Uh, and it's kind of that mindset of light and fast, but you're not racing anyone. Mm-hmm. It's kind of where I come so from. So do you, do you, does it depend on where you get to? So you, you have those dull and boring days, which I think is quite a normal thing, especially if you're out for a couple of weeks or months. Yeah. And, but you've also got those days where you just only do a short distance because it's actually quite interesting what you're doing or mm. you meet some interesting people. I think that's the beauty of bikepacking. You just don't really know what's going to happen each day or <coughs> who you're going to meet because you're just going to stop somewhere random because you're tired and you want to eat some sweets and then someone will come and talk to you and then you'll end up going to drink a cup of tea with them or you'll be camping. I'm thinking about when we cycled through Turkey was a good place for random uh, encounters because the people uh, we so we spent about a month probably cycling the Black Sea coast on our way across uh, Europe to Central Asia, and just every day you could barely stop your bike anywhere without people coming up to you and trying to feed you or take you somewhere to uh, let you stay at their house or you know we camp on the beach and people one time people came up and they'd seen us pitch our quite small tent and you know start cooking. And uh, they came over t- because they said that um, they thought our tent was a, a bit small and surely we weren't going to be able to sleep very well. And it, it, they had a much bigger tent with a big comfy mattress. So wouldn't we like to come and sleep in their tent? They go and sleep in their car um, yeah. so that we can sleep in their comfy tent and have a good night's sleep. And just I don't know, just so many random, random experiences. Mm. You never, you never know who you're going to meet or what's going to happen. The only thing I'm thinking is distances is it's all relative because we in like in the last year we cycled into kind of part of Tibet um, which you can still access but on the way in um, we didn't have a map that told us altitude and we left um, on the first day and we, we were going quite slowly and Marion was complaining and we kind of got a bit upset at the top of the first climb because it was quite hard work and I said it's fine why are we going so slowly um, and I'd give her some quite easy gears because I knew there'd be altitude coming up at some point uh, and anyway we got on with it and the next day we only did 40 kilometres and I was thinking this is how can you do 40 kilometers? And we looked, uh, and we've been at 4,300 meters uh, first two days <laughs> after a 3,800 meter pass on day one. Uh, and I said, hands up, yeah, that's, that's my bad. <laughs> we were going slowly because it wasn't much option. So it's just that kind of, you know, you just go, if, if we've been pushing hard, you know, maybe we'd have had issues with altitude sickness and things like that. Uh, and it's just listen to your body and see what you experience. And I think, yeah. yeah. Did you make him pay for it? <laughs> The deco in the panniers after that. <laughs> <laughs> He's given me rap for being in like the my granny gear, and so then he couldn't complain after that. <laughs> it was a very good reason that I was in the wrong gear. <laughs> so how do you how do you because you've been to some amazing destinations? Um, how, how do you how do you pick where you go? Is that <laughs> is that a random thing or is there? Beauty of Google Maps, isn't it? And then okay. you go, I'm going to go there. <laughs> and then it becomes reality. I don't know, it's, it's amazing the time we live in. Because you can, you can get anywhere on a plane. I, it's, it's bad because we've become quite... Well, we started off doing long trips and we had... Our lifestyle allowed us to do a lot more kind of longer trips. Um, I worked eight months of the year, so we had four months off and, mm-hmm. and in between contracts and things. Um, so we had the opportunity to do longer trips and I think that's fantastic because you're not flying places, you're using the bike to travel between places and it's and it's great. Um, more recently now we've been back in Scotland, we've kind of got less time to do these trips so we tend to fly into places which is, I find from a sustainability point of view, quite frustrating. Um, but at the same time it's it's beautiful to go to these places and, and, and they're changing fast and I want to go and see these places before the Chinese ruin them further, for example, uh, in Tibet. Um, and, and, and it's kind of finding that balance, I guess, yeah, no, no, it's fine. It's yeah, fine. I think we 
I'm quite interested to see places that we feel like are changing quite a lot. And so, for example, so last year we went to Tibet, but the year before we went to Tajikistan and did the Pamir Highway, and we cycled through um, an area called the Wakan Valley, which is um, sort of on the border of uh, Tajikistan and Afghanistan. So we were in Tajikistan, but the other side of the river that we were cycling on was Afghanistan. And it's um, that area of Afghanistan is quite isolated from the rest of Afghanistan. It's like a little finger of land that sticks out. Um, but it was a fascinating valley to cycle on because um, although if you followed the road from the nearest big town, it, it did carry on and join up with the highway again. It was quite a bad road, so it wasn't really kind of through traffic going through there. And so up the end of the valley, it's probably one of the only places that I've been that you couldn't buy a can of Coca-Cola. There weren't any plastic bottles in the shops, which meant that there wasn't any rubbish hardly at all. People, people were very self-sufficient up there. Um, they were growing a lot of the, um, pretty much everything that they ate. They had a, they had a, we were showing the water mill where they ground their own flour, so the, the villagers would come with a sack of grain, and then the day later the guy wearing a, he was wearing an Adidas tracksuit to be fair, so it wasn't quite that cut off, but <laughs> <laughs> he would then get them back. <laughs> but there were, yeah, and that was, that was how they got their bread, there was no shop, there was no, it was amazing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so it was a really interesting place to see, because you kind of think, well, there's only so long it's going to be like that before. I mean, everyone had a, people had a smartphone and stuff, like it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't. They had better smartphones than we had. To it, was, it was, yeah. <laughs> they were on, uh, yeah, past the network of <laughs> yeah, before we were here. Yeah. <laughs> and are you mainly, are, are you camping most of the time, or are you staying in the town? Tajikistan was good because um, a charity had been through and uh, helped um, people in all the villages set up homestays in their homes. Um, so just, I think it just sort of advised them on what sort of thing that... Um, tourists might expect from a homestay and kind of what to charge and what to feed people and stuff. Um, but it meant that um, it was a really nice way to sort of immerse yourself a bit more in the kind of culture, especially with that language barrier, um, to be able to go and stay in someone's home and eat what they're having for dinner and be a bit nosy and stuff. It was, and, and also it means that you can kind of, I don't know, spread a bit of income. Like each, each village you go to, you stay with someone who lives there. And... Uh, so you're contributing to their their economy um, each time. So in Tajikistan, we stayed in a lot of homestays just because they were there, and they were a really mm. nice opportunity to meet people. We camped on the first night. We got to we came down to the Afghan border from the plateau, the Pamir plateau, and there was a military base at the end of the valley uh, with a, a tank parked up and two armed soldiers. And we were thinking, hmm, this is this is a stupid idea. <laughs> Why are we cycling to Afghanistan effectively? <laughs> so then we we had no option but to camp that night. So we rode past the checkpoint where the guy demanded iPod headphones um, <laughs> off us at gunpoint, and I didn't have any, so, uh, so that was a bit we scary. A big yeah, we were a disappointment. No cigarettes. <laughs> no cigarettes. <laughs> so we, anyway, we carried on. And just thinking, one of the few nights we camped, um, and it, it, while camping at the best times, you know, somewhere new to you can be a little bit intimidating, but in the night, uh, a group of horsemen were charging along on the Afghan side in the middle of nowhere, and we were thinking, hmm, this is the prime drug smuggling route of <laughs> into the Western world, so it probably wasn't the best place. So we didn't have a great night there, but yeah. nothing happened and it was fine. And, and I think that's always what you learn in the world camp. It's usually better than you think. <laughs> Did you have any, any, any bad experiences at all? Or? I don't, we never had a bad experience while camping. We're quite careful, <laughs> I guess, about where we were yeah. in camp. We try and, you know, tuck ourselves away. But in, on our trip to Tibet last year, we were well camping. We did get attacked by wolves one night, didn't we? We did get attacked by wolves. They took an interest in us. Happily, we were camped next to a rubbish dump, which was why the wolves were there. But they were, in, a, in the end, more interested in the rubbish dump than they were in us. Because we'd eaten all our food. <laughs> okay. That's cool. Slept really well that night. <laughs> <laughs> so, this is a because I, I also read a little bit about risk that sounds like risk how do you how do you if you go to those remote places how is how do you judge whether it's safe or not or do you just go there and, and, and trust you trust your gut feeling I think a lot of these places are although they sound quite intimidating and unknown I guess yes. <coughs> the pe people out there seem to be I don't know so nice. With, yeah, <laughs> I, it's, it's amazing how. 
was going to say from the roads. Yeah, the roads generally, there's, oh, I feel for cycling on the roads itself, I think it's a lot safer in a lot of places because although they drive crazy fast, you can hear them coming and there's less traffic uh, and tend to be more courteous of you as a cyclist. So from that point of view, I think it, I'd rather cycle from one side of the country in Central Asia, even, uh, I was going to say Nepal, but that wasn't a good example. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, even places you think of as crazy drivers, because there's less traffic and because you're a novelty, I think people tend to pull around and I, I feel safer. Whereas places like America, the UK, I find it's a very high risk place to cycle and bike pack. Um, and I think, yeah, the other risks are more in your mind than what you experience in terms of what could happen and what does happen. The main risk in places like Tibet and um, the Pamirs is probably the weather and having enough kit, you know, finding a, good, a supply of water when it's I like to freeze overnight, that, that sort of thing. I mean, we took, we always take winter camping kit with us, so we have we are quite well prepared, even with the small bags. You can, I guess, because we've been doing it for quite a few years, we kind of gradually stocked up on lightweight but winter style gear. So we are quite self-sufficient from that, but mm -hmm. it places like the Pamis, I mean, it was boiling hot one day and then it snowed overnight and there's snow on the ground the next day, so you do have to take enough kit that you can deal with all of that. Yeah. Is there ever a situation where one blames the other one for being in a certain <laughs> situation? <laughs> I wasn't very happy that night in Afghanistan, was it? I was like, the cam there was camels as well, there's camels there, I was like, they were doing one. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> No, they're fine. Um, no, I don't, I don't know. I, you, sometimes we quit, we say it's going to be the last. We always say it's the last trip when we come back. <laughs> I was the last day in Tibet last at the end of last year. I got very sick um, and was. Um, I don't know, tell the whole story. I'm not very patient. Sure. <laughs> Ed was barely able to cycle his bike, which for Ed means something I, I seriously wrong. <laughs> but this is this is a, uh, this is a good example of bikepacking and cycle touring in general. Where I nearly passed out on the side of the road because I've been just trying to keep Coke, Coca Cola down, and it was yeah, couldn't keep it down. And then I, we said, "This is ridiculous. There's no traffic. We're never going to get anywhere." And then a, a shiny pickup truck turned up, stopped, and offered us a lift. And we, wow, this is amazing. So then I sat in the back of the pickup truck trying my best not to make a mess in his pickup truck and we got driven to the nearest town and it's things like that that yeah it's always something works out in the end I think doesn't it but we always say it at the time the last, <laughs> last time and your brain does that thing where it forgets all of it and you're really bad and it remembers yeah, all the nice surprises yeah, yeah. and the starry nights and then yeah. you go and go again <laughs> so it's Picture-wise, who does the? Is it both of you sharing that? Or? Uh, Ed's the master photographer, and he's the one who has to lug the several kilograms of camera around. Okay, so that's the lightweight kit, then. Yeah, that's the terrible irony, right? This lightweight kit and then a massive camera. I do, yeah, because I take pictures for Apertura as well, and um, I always say this is ridiculous because. I'm taking as much kit to take photos of the lightweight kit. <laughs> <laughs> so the kit you pack should weigh less than your bike? Yes. So that's the case? Well, I think so. I think it's a reasonable... Uh, <laughs> is this a rule? This, this, is, this is rule number three, is it? <laughs> I do think there's a logic here because if you go lighter you, in your kit, you can go lighter in your wheels because the wheels don't have to take as much weight uh, and it all kind of fits together, I think it, that's the kind of the logic I was going with. So if you're taking a lot of kit, you have to take heavier wheels and you have to take a heavier rack and you have to, and it all starts adding up. But the less kit you take, the lighter wheels you get away with, the lighter tires you can get away with, and it all starts to come down together. Um, so that's kind of what I was getting at with that. People didn't always agree with that. That's the second rule of bike packing. Yes. First rule of bikepacking is there's no panniers allowed. But you're allowed, <laughs> <laughs> but you're allowed to take a basket. So, so, yeah. <laughs> so uh, just take a basket for some flowers and your baguette if you need. But wax and panniers are no go. But you're also saying that you don't have a picture with a basket of flowers well, with you on the on the trip. The reason that story came out, we were at a very sketchy border point in into Tajikistan from Kyrgyzstan. And uh, we were just bracing ourselves to have to pay a lot of US dollars over. And a French guy rocks up <laughs> with a bike with 
a basket on uh, and uh, and took their attention and put it that way when he had minimal kit and was doing it in good style <laughs> I have to put it I'll leave it like that so, so they kind of lost interest in us and went to this flamboyant Frenchman and uh, we got through without any problems but fair play to him for crossing the pioneers with not much kit <laughs> other than a basket so. um, just just in, in, in terms of risk Naomi is there, has there ever been a situation in one of those 24 hour ways where you said that's it I'm not, I'm not doing it it's too I'm too tired uh, uh. Excuses? There's always that occasion. Okay. That occasion happens pretty much every race. Um, and and I, I've said this to a number of people, that, that one of the biggest parts of 24-hour racing isn't so much your sort of fitness and your your um, skill on the bike, it's, it's the head game that's involved. Because everyone gets to that point in the night where they just want to go to sleep. Um, and you're absolutely exhausted and your eyes are sort of shutting while you're riding over fairly technical stuff um, and uh, I guess where perhaps I benefit here is because I'm pretty stubborn mm -hmm. um, and I just tend to keep going and the first 24 hour race I did I made the stupid mistake of, um, of not having any caffeine I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a 40-something mother of two. My bladder isn't what it used to be. And now if I have any kind of diuretic, I just need to stop constantly. Uh, and I was really, really paranoid about having to go to the toilet every lap. Uh, so, so I decided I wasn't going to have any caffeine and just hit a complete wall at sort of two in the morning and slept. Um, and that's the only time I ever did it because after that I learned and I had caffeine. And... So do you ride the whole, the whole time? Yeah. Without any breaks in between? Uh, well, I mean, you, you sort of, it's all lap based, like the seven yeah, hour yeah. race. So you, you come into a pit stop every lap and you maybe stop for, you know, a couple of minutes, have a swig of whatever, Coke or tea or hot soup or, you know, a mouthful of pasta or anything that you can stomach by that stage and, and then head off again. Yeah. And the, the less time you stop, the easier it is to go back out again. <coughs> Yeah, there's a, um, just trying to head a elephant. Um, yeah, but just I, I found a quite quote from Mike Hall about this, uh, which fits pretty well. Um, the winner who will be the guy who lives fast, not necessarily one who rides fast. So I think it's it's quite quite an interesting thing. So, um, but there's never been like a like a point where you kind of said that's it, I'm done with it, I'm, I'm not doing this any longer now. Um. What's the motivation to, to get you out there? Because I think it's, it must be, must be quite a monotonous thing, doing one lap after another. And usually the course gets worse on those places. It does. It's um. really tedious. Um, <laughs> it's really <laughs> tedious. And so where's the enjoyment? The, uh, it's, it's, it's sort of after-the-fact enjoyment. It, it's, yeah. it's the type two fun thing. Um, and it's what you, know, you guys were both saying about the sort of romanticizing about it afterwards during during the course of the event it becomes less and less pleasant because that's like middle third <laughs> you've done you've done eight hours and by the end of the eight hours really most normal people should stop um that's what i did <laughs> and that middle eight hours is just the pits because you're already tired by this point um you're already hurting but everyone is uh, and I guess, like, like I was saying, it's the, it's the head game. It's, it's constantly remembering that everyone feels the same way and they're feeling it worse than you. And, and as long as you can kind of get that mindset, if they're feeling it worse than me, so it's fine, I should just keep going. Are you looking at other people in the race? Do you look at people who might be competing with you? Uh, just to kind of see what they're doing and just kind of trying to stick I, on their wheel? Or? I try really hard not to. Okay. Um, because it's such a long event, you really just got to ride your own race. Mm -hmm. um, the worst thing you can do is try and race someone because you'll end up going too fast and, and blowing up uh, and then not being able to keep going. And so much can happen in 24 hours. You know, you could have a, like a ridiculous mechanical that means you can't ride for an hour or, or your race is over. And so, you know, there comes a point where you maybe start looking at what everyone else is doing, but it's usually only in the last sort of four hours. And what's the feeling like? Because when you after twenty four hours, is that relief? Is it <laughs> happiness? Is it just not having it's just energy to think anything at all? Uh, it's 
it's an overwhelming sense of achievement, yeah. um, usually, and the sort of sense of camaraderie of everyone that's taken part and um, just, you know, everyone sort of congratulates everyone else, uh, however your race went. Um, and, and, yeah, exhaustion and hunger and need for sleep and probably feeling sick and all of those things. So and how long does, <laughs> does it take until you recover from, 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 a, from a race again? Um, I'm, I'm usually back riding my bike within sort of three or four days, but it's like an hour riding really slowly on the flat. A couple of weeks, maybe, okay. until I'm yeah, training again. So you go into the 24-hour world champs in three weeks? Three weeks. Yeah. yeah How's weeks. that going, preparation-wise? Um, it's going fine. It's going fine. My bike is broken. It's not stressing me out at all. Uh, <laughs> it it'll go the way it goes. I'm gonna pitch up. I'm gonna ride um, to the best of my ability and just really enjoy being on the same stages as, as the world's best. So Where is it? Uh, it's in the north of Italy, in Finale Liguri. Yeah, yeah. It's gonna be incredible. And warm, unlike anything <laughs> I've done before. <laughs> Interesting. Just kind of linking back. Biggest reward for leaving the front door. Three of you. Oh, what gets you out? Especially, let's let's take it. It's a, it, it, today is possibly not the best day as an example. <laughs> if it's if it's raining and it's quite miserable and you know you. You know, what's I enjoy that. Yeah. In some ways. <laughs> I don't know why I, 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 I don't train as such but I just make sure I ride to work every day basically. Um, for race training and, and I and that gets me out and then when I'm out I know I'll have a good time. It's like the rain smashing your face, you're thinking this is living and kind of experiencing it. And I don't know, I, I, people <laughs> think I'm crazy, I know, but but if you're thinking if you I think people will overtake me, pity me and think Oh, geez, that guy's cycling in this weather. It's horrible. What's he doing? Uh, and I'm thinking those guys are just cocooned in their car and missing out. So anyway, that's the kind of whatever the weather. I know you can have a good time. I guess. 